Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Well, good morning. Um, to get started, I, I want to tell you that we are going to only be focusing on three verses today, and that is the last three verses of Luke chapter 20. So Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. And I want to say from these three verses and from the context around it, two things. And I'll share with you now what those two things are. They're pretty simple. They start out pretty simple, at least. Uh, The first thing in regards to Jesus and his words about the scribes is, number one, how can we be less like the scribes? Pretty simple stuff here. But then number two, you may be shocked to hear this. How can we be more like Jesus? So that's really it. How can we be less like the scribes? How can we be more like Jesus? Let me pray, and then I'll read Luke 20, verses 45 through 47. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one in the seat back in front of you now. I didn't know that that was going to happen, but um, I'll pray. We'll read, and we'll get started. Father, be with us today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let us understand your word. Let us understand not just uh, the the words, but the meaning behind them. Let us dig deeper than than the surface and and understand what you are trying to say to us today through your word. Uh, Be with us, Lord. Let uh, Let us love you. Let us fear you. And let us act in obedience to you as we try to be more like you and your son whom you have sent to die on the cross for our sins. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke 20, verses 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay, so three verses, but there is a transition that's happening here, and I want to explain to you this transition and provide a little bit of context by saying two things. Number one is is simply that we are in a transitionary point right here where Jesus is done with the scribes, or better yet, maybe the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they're done with him. Up to this point, they have been challenging Jesus. They've been challenging his authority. They have been trying to trick him, trying to track him, trap him, excuse me. And they have failed. They, have, they are unsuccessful because of the fact that Jesus is God and they can't trap God. Um, and so they have moved on, they have given up, and now they want to arrest Jesus and put him in, in, in crucify him and, and kill him and his life. And so they're done. And Jesus is done with them, and so Jesus is now turning to his disciples and the people around him. And the other thing I want to say in, in, in context is that this is Wednesday of Holy Week. This is Wednesday. And so you think about what's coming over these next few days. We have Thursday, which we remember as Maundy Thursday, the day that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested and handed over. We have Good Friday, two days from today, where Jesus dies on the cross and is buried. And then we have two days after that, or the third day, Easter Sunday, where Jesus 
raises from the dead and conquers death. And so, but today, in this verse, it is Wednesday. And so Jesus has a limited amount of time to say some final things. I hate that I have to do this, but I really wanna say he has 24 hours left, but my brain cannot allow me to do that because it is actually like daytime during this time. And so really he has more like 30 hours left and not 24, so 30 hours. 30 hours to deliver some final words before he is handed over and arrested. And and what does he say in these last few hours? Well, one, he warns them, he warns the disciples about the scribes. And this is Luke 20, 45 through 47 is, is a very truncated version. We're gonna look at Matthew 23. Matthew 23 covers a lot more of what is going on Here, we're gonna look at the whole chapter, but he warns the people, his followers about the scribes. He warns them about the scribes and the Pharisees, which you'll see in Matthew. Um, And then after that, what we see in the rest of Luke before he gets arrested is he's telling them, the people, about what's to come. About the destruction of the temple, about wars and persecution, about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's it. That is it for his final 30 hours in which he can communicate to them before he dies on the cross. And so these are important things. These are important things. His warning about the scribes, his his telling about what's to come, these are things that really matter because these are some of the last things he's going to say. So the first thing, like I said, that I want to talk about is the scribes and how we can be less like the scribes. And so let's look at these verses. And I wanna draw from these verses four things, four warnings from Jesus, that four warnings that we can take about the scribes from Jesus and, and we can take those and apply those to our lives. The first thing I'll read starting in 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. I'll stop there. So they have these long robes. What does that mean? I could, I could go in one direction and talk about, hey, you're dressed the way you dress, it matters. Are you trying to portray yourself in a certain way? But here's the thing that I will say about their long robes. The long robes was a symbol of power. And I'm getting that from Isaiah chapter six, where we see God, uh, we see a vision, Isaiah's vision of God on the throne. And it says in one of the verses that the train of his robe filled the whole temple. And what that meant, what that was meant to communicate is that God is the king of the earth. Conquering kings back in that time took a piece of garment from a land that they conquered and they hemmed that to their robe and made it longer. So the longer the robe, the more power, the more they conquered. So they loved to walk around in long robes. My first warning that I wanna give you about the scribes is that they loved power. They craved power. Number two, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Greetings in marketplaces, best seats, places of honor. They craved a high status. It's pretty self-explanatory. That's my second warning I wanna give to you as to how we cannot be like the scribes, how we should not be like the scribes. They loved power and they loved status. Number three needs a little bit, a little bit more explanation. 
All right, so they love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, and they devour widows' houses. All right, what does that mean? Now, I looked in commentaries. I tried to find answers. There's no consensus as to what that that means, but there is a theme based off of six or so different suggestions as to what that could mean. Um, I want to share with you what I think Jesus is saying here when he says they love to devour widows' houses, and and I want you to know that I hold this very open-handedly. If I come to find out that I'm wrong about this, so be it. But here's what I think Jesus is saying when he says they love to devour widows' houses. If you remember the last time I preached, it was a sermon on the persistent widow and how she was making her case before the judge, the unrighteous judge, and you picture a widow in a position like this. She wants justice, she wants what's due to her, and she's not getting it. Well, these scribes, they were also known as lawyers. And if you can connect the dots here, why would they be known as lawyers? Well, they devoted their lives to studying the law, to studying the Torah. And so, people referred to them as people who knew the law, as experts in the law, as lawyers. And so, in some cases with widows, they would come to their aid, but it was not, it was against the law for them to charge a wage. And they would charge wages because, all right, it was against the law for them to charge a wage, but you know, if you're gonna go help a rich man, you're a lawyer, you're gonna help a rich man and you charge nothing, you can still expect something in return because the rich man is gonna wanna pay you back for your deed in helping him. But what is a, what is a widow gonna give you? A widow is gonna give you nothing in return. You should expect nothing in return. It is wrong for you to expect something in return from a widow. So they're not getting anything. They know that that they, they should not get anything, but they don't care. They want what they believe is due to them, and they charge a fee to these poor widows. They devour widows' houses. They charge them exorbitant fees to come to their aid. So they devour widows' houses. So here's my third warning. My first warning, power, their love of power. Second warning, love of status. The third warning is their their desire for unjust gain. That's what we see from the scribes here. And number four, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. We see Jesus warning in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, when you pray, do not pray to be seen, but pray in secret, and your your heavenly Father who sees you in secret will reward you. But they love to show how godly they are. They love to make these long prayers so that they can appear more righteous than they actually are. And that is my fourth warning to you, Christian, is that the the scribes, we are to not be like the scribes, they they have a desire for an appearance of righteousness and godliness. They want to look more holy than they actually are. So again, power, status, unjust gain, an appearance of righteousness and godliness. Do not be like the scribes and Pharisees. They are proud. And we see in James 4, God opposes opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Here we have Jesus opposing the proud. And what's their fate? A greater condemnation. They are going to hell. They are in hell right now suffering the consequences of their pride. 
So I want to ask you, CTK, as we're thinking about how not to be like the scribes, how not to be like the Pharisees, and please don't answer this question out loud, is Christ the King Church a proud church or a humble church? I'll give you a short answer and then I'll give you a longer answer. Uh, My answer to whether Christ the King Church is a proud church or a humble church is simply, I don't know. But I want to tell you, you know, we moved here, my family, we moved here in July of 2020. And I asked people about CTK, tell me about this church. And there were three things that I, that I consistently heard, three main themes, and, and one was um, very intellectual. This isn't a church where you come to listen to lighthearted easy sermons, you're challenged, and I praise God for that. Uh, number two, the thing, the thing that I heard was that we are a young church. Michael, when we talked once before we moved here, um, he told me that I would be in the top 5% of oldest people in this church, and ooh, very young church at the time. The third thing that I, that I heard was um, a lot of successful people. A lot of people, a lot of medical professionals, a lot of engineers, lots of people who have risen through the ranks of their companies and have become successful in their realms. The top 1%, the top 0.1%, only the creme de la creme can get to where they've gotten in their companies. And so my conclusion after hearing all those things was, okay, well, Christ the King Church is a proud church. And I I don't think that would offend many of you to to hear me say that. Um, The thing that I will say is that being young, successful, and humble is incredibly rare. And so that's just going to happen in a church like ours. And then I moved here, and I would say that my suspicions were confirmed. But I would also say that we as a church are getting more humble. And I praise God for that. There's two things that I wanna say as to why I'm saying that I I think, well no, I mean what I'm seeing, these are things that you can see with your own eyes, is that um, we are starting to add, forgive me if this applies to you, older people and foreign born people at increasing rates. And so why is that a sign that we are becoming more humble? Well, there's something about young American pride that I think is repulsive to people. They can just see it. And so in the past they would come and they would never come back and now they're coming and some are staying. And and I love it. So we are becoming more humble, I believe that. Um, but if there are two areas, if there are some areas where I would say, hey, this is, we should not be like the scribes, like the Pharisees, I would say that it seems to me like we still care about our status a little too much. You know, and, and I, I want to tell you something frank up front, and then I kind of want to smooth that out. Um, if you take a lot of pride in the accomplishments that you've made, 
the achievements, the rising that you have done at such a young age, I want to tell you straight up, I don't care. And that's kind of, except with two exceptions. I mean, I care about what's in here. This is what I care about. But two exceptions, one positive, one negative. Exception number one is, is if you care, then I care. But I care for different reasons. I care because I don't want you to care. But number two, the other reason that I, I would care is if you have demonstrated a willingness to sacrifice. You know, if, if you are ever at a point where you have to choose between being bona fide, you know, being one of, one of the chosen people who have succeeded in this world, and your faith in Christ, and you know that in a heartbeat you would give all that up for Christ, then you who have that high and lofty position, you certainly have my respect. That is not something I can resonate with as a self-employed man. My boss is not gonna fire me. Uh, that would be weird. Um, so it seems to me like that's an area where we can grow as a church. Number two, I would say this is true of most Christians, an area where we can grow. Most Christians have a desire to appear, to appear godly, whether they are actually godly or not. And so what I would say to you is kill that, be who you are. You know, trust in the Lord that he is going to change you over time, that he's going to grow you and sanctify you. And if you are not a godly man or woman now, that you will become a godly man or woman at another time. And I'll say this to you, truth and time go hand in hand. You'll hear me say this many times over the years. Truth and time go hand in hand. If you are an ungodly man or woman who wants to be, who is trying to portray yourself as a godly man or woman, truth and time go hand in hand. And so be who you are. All right. So that is, we should not be like the scribes. We should not crave power, status, unjust gain, and appearance of righteousness or godliness. So who should we be like? Well, obviously, Sunday school answer, we should be like Jesus. And so we look at this passage, Luke, 40, Luke, Luke 2, verses 45 through 47, and how should we be like Jesus? Well, just from looking at this passage, here's what I'll say as to how we should be like Jesus. We should be like Jesus in our opposition of those who are enemies of the truth, of ungodliness, of sin. We should be like Jesus in that regard. Um, and I wanna say something before we're gonna read Matthew 23. Godly opposition, godly opposition is a good thing. I keep hearing these buzzwords. It just happens in, in evangelicalism, these buzzwords that just kind of set my radar off. And here's the, the new trend that I, I tend to, to see often is you have a man or a woman being faithful. And then you have somebody else coming in, someone who claims to be a Christian and maybe is a Christian, saying, that's not the way of Jesus. What does that mean? 
That's not the way of Jesus. A couple examples. Uh, we have a man, a friend of, of all of ours, I won't name his name, who I believe is, is being faithful, and another man has come in, someone we don't know, and has said, that's not the way of Jesus. You should not be doing that. Jesus wouldn't do that. We have um, Uganda. They've passed some anti-sodomy laws recently. And I've read this, the, this law, it's 19 pages, and it's pretty common sense stuff. Yeah, only 19 pages. I would have thought, you know, in the United States, a law like that would be like 3,000 pages. But 19 pages, this anti-sodomy law. And it's pretty common sense stuff, talking about aggravated homosexuality against a child, a disabled person, a person of advanced age. In other words, it's a law to protect the weak and the vulnerable. That's what this law in Uganda that's been passed. And we have Russell Moore, a very well-known evangelical leader who has written for the New York Times. He has come out, he wrote an article against Uganda. And what has he said? What, what has he said? He said, that's not the way of Jesus. And so, what is the way of Jesus? Because I would actually say the opposite. I would say that that is very much the way of Jesus. It's very much the way of Jesus to oppose sin and ungodliness, to oppose heresy. And we can see it in the word of God. Matthew 23, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read this whole chapter. I'm gonna read up until verse 36 and then I will read verses 37 to 39 at the end, a little bit later. And just a warning, I'm going to read it how I think Jesus actually spoke it, or how Wade Thomas would read it if he was up here, if he were up here, so. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven." Neither be called instructors, because you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest of you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who says, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And, if you, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? 
So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, You brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced from hell to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. I said this already, I'll say it again. This is Luke 20, verses, 47, verses 45 through 47, is a truncated version of this. So Luke just gives this really brief summary, and this is what Jesus said. So I want to ask those who would say, to godly opposition, that's not the way of Jesus. Why is this okay? Why is Jesus' hard words okay, but when a faithful man or woman does like a tenth of that, it's not okay? I want to be fair to them. Um, I think, and I'd love your feedback after this, I think what they would say is, um, well, it's because Jesus was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's my response to that. Do you realize that the scribes and the Pharisees were actually popular back in Jesus' day? In other words, if you were able to go back to Jerusalem to the year 30 AD, and I think one of the biggest surprises, one of the biggest things that would surprise you would be that the scribes and Pharisees would actually come off as decent people. You know, you, you might describe some of them as kind, caring, respectable, and sweet. But, you know, any movie that you see, The Passion of the Christ, we can talk about this later, I'm not a huge fan of that movie. Okay. The Passion of the Christ, how are, how are the scribes, how are the, how are the Jewish leaders described? Like, how are they portrayed? You know, they're, they're the worst, you know? They're these crusty, joyless, 
angry, mean people. They're, it's a clear cut. Jesus is the good guy. They're the bad guys. Any movie that you would see with Jesus and Pharisees, it's the same thing. They're, Jesus is the good guy. And oh yeah, those, those Pharisees, they look pretty nasty. But they were popular. They were actually well-received, well-liked in those days because people could see the outside. They couldn't see the inside. But what we see when reading the Gospels is a view of the opposite. We see the inside and we see the fact that they are whitewashed tombs full of death but looking beautiful on the outside. And so it's easy for us to think, oh yeah, these, these scribes and Pharisees, they were just awful, awful people. But I don't think it would, if we could exist if we could go back to that time, it would be as clear. And what I, the reason why I'm saying this is I think most of us would hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 23, and we'd get pretty uncomfortable. I'm talking about myself. I would get uncomfortable listening to Jesus. You know, wait, I, I know some of these scribes. They're decent men. Jesus, I think you're being too hard here. So what do they mean? Again, when they're saying this is not the way of Jesus. Well, what they're saying is Jesus is compassionate and when you oppose ungodliness, you are not showing compassion. I would say that's, actually, that's not true. And so here's how I would improve their argument, not perfect it, but improve it. Instead of saying that's not the way of Jesus, I think what they should say is do a complete 180 and say, at least this is a starting point, that's only the way of Jesus. That should only be the way of Jesus because what's the difference between Jesus and us? Jesus can see hearts. We can't. That would be a much more respectable argument. Not That's not the way of Jesus, but this is only a place where Jesus should tread. But they do the exact opposite. And, and then again, okay, we... We see godly opposition to sin and heresy all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible. Paul in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul in Philippians, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Whoa, Paul. Paul, that's not the way of Jesus. Galatians. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. All right, well, you know, for some, Paul's not the most popular, but I mean, we see Jude, we see Peter, 2 Peter 2, Peter calls false prophets irrational animals, blots and blemishes, waterless springs, misdriven by a storms, he calls them dogs. Jude, he calls false prophets fruitless trees, twice dead uprooted waterless clouds, wild waves of the sea. It is all throughout the Old and New Testament. It is all throughout church history. This is how we as a church refine ourselves and come to grow in our understanding of who God is through resisting opposition and through understanding why we resist that opposition. I want to say one more thing. It's a, it's a story, it's, it's my own journey in this because I don't know, you know, some of you, that I don't know how popular 
this, uh, this subject may be, that, I, that we are to be like Jesus. Um, we are to be like Jesus in this regard. Um, it, it is godly and good to oppose sin and error and heresy in our day, just like Jesus. At the very least, for a faithful pastor, especially in an area where the sheep are vulnerable to falling away. And if a pastor is not doing these things, he is not doing half of his job. So, my own journey, my own way of of how I've come to understand uh, my desire to be more like Jesus in this regard. Several years ago, I was single. I lived with a man named Bob Kaplowitz. Bob was born Jewish. He became a Christian, a godly man. But Bob was, uh, he had cerebral palsy. And so six young men lived with him to care for him. And Bob, I love Bob. He recently went to be with the Lord. Godly man, I love him. One day while I was caring for him, he told me he wanted to go to Planned Parenthood. He wanted to go to Planned Parenthood and sit there in his wheelchair. He was completely immobile, except for his mouth. Um, He wanted to go there and sit at Planned Parenthood and be with those who were protesting, those who were pleading with the women to not go in and, and murder their children. Bob wanted to go there. He's my boss. I went with him. And I will tell you, I was very uncomfortable the entire time. We were there for about an hour. I sat in judgment, you know. We're wasting our time. What's the point of this? This is fruitless. And um, being the young, correct, arrogant young man that I was, I let people know about it. I wrote, I messaged some people and I said to them, to some pastors, some other people, I would be interested to know how many abortions have been prevented by standing outside of the Planned Parenthood location in Bloomington, Indiana. Have any? Sure, that can't be measured and we don't know what's going on in people's hearts, but is it really a good use of our time to stand out there with signs? I would argue that nothing is changing by doing that. Also, if you listen to what the people are standing out there are saying, it's pretty ridiculous. They're saying things like, it isn't too late to change your mind to women who are about to walk in the door. Is every woman walking into Planned Parenthood about to have an abortion? Um, No, side note, that particular day, every woman was walking into Planned Parenthood to have an abortion. I was wrong, I didn't know that. Um, Don't get me wrong, I think Planned Parenthood is evil and I'm disgusted by the fact that Margaret Sanger's first intentions when she started it was to aid in reducing the number of African Americans in this country, but standing out there is essentially, and essentially doing nothing seems pretty worthless to me. So here I was, young, confident, standing out there and essentially doing nothing seems pretty worthless to me. I was so focused on the results, I was so focused on weighing, all right, you know, we're damaging our witness versus, you know, are we actually saving any lives? Are are there children, are there babies who, you know, are parents who are changing their minds as a result of their work? I was sitting there as the judge not realizing, not trusting God, not 
counting the fact that God is the one who knows the hearts, not me, that God is the one who, if someone wants to be faithful, God will use him or her no matter what. And if these people saw it in their hearts at this point to stand there and to plead with these women to speak to the escorts there who are walking in with them, that God will use them. They're reading the word, they're singing songs. God's word will not return void. But I sat on this for about two and a half years, convinced, so utter waste of time. There's so many other things that we could be doing until one day, the pastor of that church said something in passing that caused me to do a complete 180, just completely changed my mind. He said, holiness, I'm gonna read this a couple times, holiness doesn't consist simply in avoiding evil ourselves. We must expose and oppose it. The godly don't stop after saying God's yes, but always follow through saying God's no also. The holiness doesn't consist simply in avoiding evil ourselves. We must expose and oppose it. The godly don't stop after saying God's yes, but always follow through saying God's no also. Is that something you agree with? All he was doing was referencing Ephesians 5.11. Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's all he was doing. And that caused a change in my heart. And I wrote to those same people and I apologized to them. I was wrong. I discouraged faithful people from doing faithful things because of my arrogance. And several years later, I went back to that Planned Parenthood for a year and a half. Every Thursday morning, the day that mothers would go in there and fathers with them to murder their children. And before I talk about that, I want to be sensitive to something. In a room this size, there is a possibility that some of you have committed that sin, whether you are a woman who has done that or a man who has unnecessarily pressured someone to do that. And I I want to tell you Maybe this is the first time you're hearing that as murder. It is murder. But I also want to tell you, if you have acknowledged and repented of that sin, there is no condemnation. You are loved. You are welcome here. We love you. All right. So I went back several years later to that Planned Parenthood. The first time I went back, there was a sweet godly older woman named Carol Canfield. I'll never forget the words that she said to me. I was standing there nervous, unsure of myself, and she said, preach, Alex. And so I preached. And I preached nonstop. The moment I got there to the moment I left, literally nonstop, reading scripture, praying, preaching, pleading for a year and a half. And I would love to share with you some happy ending, but I, what I want to tell you is that the escorts there, the, the people walking these women in, um, what I noticed was that their hearts just got more and more hard. And so is that a failure on my part? What, what, I, what I'll tell you is God's word 
does not return void. I pled with them. And I do want to tell you also, the thing that I said most, the, the thing that I most often said to them were the words simply, I love you. You know, I, I remember this one time, Ben, the security guard, he came up to me, walked right up to my face and yelled at me for about five minutes nonstop, hurling these vulgarities at me. And he walked away and I told him I loved him. First thing I said when he walked away. God's word does not return void. It is good and godly for that kind of opposition from men and women who love Jesus. We are to be like Jesus. At the very least, faithful pastors, but I would say by some extension, all of us. And maybe, yeah, you know what I'll say? Yes, there are some babies who are alive today, some children who are alive today because of that work that God, God did. I got to see some, some sweet things happen as well. But that's not the point. God will use us how he, us, how he uses us. You could very easily go to a different location and say the exact same words, and God will soften people's hearts at that place. But at my location where I was, with his word, he hardens people's hearts. To God be the glory. If you're in a position, this is the last thing I'll say, and I'll close in prayer, where you're not all that comfortable with godly opposition, I want you to do a couple things. I want you to pray and be mindful of the fact that you might be getting in the, you might be getting in the way of the work of God. And also I want to encourage you, let's reason together with our Bibles open not with how you're feeling, but with our Bibles open. That's all I will ever ask. Let's reason together. If you think I'm wrong, if you think others are wrong, open your Bible and let's talk. But I would say very much so, this is the way of Jesus. Not just this. But if we're saying that's not the way of Jesus, no. This is much more the way of Jesus than it is not. And this is the way of those who came after him. The apostles, 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that I've given to you and trust of faithful men who will be able to, to uh, tell those to others also. We are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative. And we are to prevent its decay. Let us be faithful in this. One word from A.W. Pink and I'll be done if I can find it. All right, I'm gonna just uh, butcher it. How vastly different is the God of scripture from the God of the average pulpit? Let this not be a church where that is true. Let's pray. Jesus, let us be more like you in every regard. You know, I'm just realizing there's things that I, I missed from my notes and you are God. You are sovereign. Give that to us. Let us be compassionate. Let us be godly. 
Let us look to you as an example of, who are, of, the, of the kind of men and women we are to be. Help us in that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.